In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him and apart from Him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Anyone recognize that famous text? Do you know where it's from? John chapter 1, first 14 verses, a few excerpts from the first 14 verses. According to John the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is the Word? Who is God? Jesus. Who is the Creator? Jesus. Who took on flesh? and dwelt among us, Jesus. I have to share with you the quote I share with you every Christmas uh, when I contemplate the Incarnation, that the Word has been made flesh. I always think of that famous quote by Charles Spurgeon, 19th century preacher over in London. And he says, Infinite yet infant, eternal yet born, almighty yet suckled, upholding a universe yet laying in a manger. And I always have to follow that up with J.I. Packer's famous quote. He's a contemporary theologian um, in, re- in relation to the incarnation of God. He says, the more you think about it, the more staggering it is. And I know I ask you this question on occasion. Are you staggered? staggered that God has become a man are you stunned are you astonished are you in awe are you filled with wonder that a God could love his rebellious creatures like this if you're not staggered I'm pretty sure you've never believed it I'm just pretty sure if it doesn't rock your heart and your soul if it doesn't change everything, I'm pretty sure you've never believed it. It's a colossal fact. It's a titanic truth. It's an epic reality. If it's a fairy tale, it doesn't matter. It's just another fairy tale among many fairy tales. But if it's true, it matters more than anything else possibly ever could. If God is on that donkey... (laughs) Everything changes. God is in the womb of a teenage virgin. God is in a feed trough in Bethlehem. And today, we will watch God ride into Jerusalem because His hour has come, as He told His men. His hour has come. And he's riding into Jerusalem. 
to save his people who would one day meet in a garage, a former garage, redeemed garage. You know, some of his people from all over the world that would meet in a redeemed garage in Milan, Italy and worship him. 2,000 years later, they would remember that he rode in on a donkey to sacrifice himself for his people. And I apologize. As you can tell, I'm a little moved. It's the praise team's fault. (laughs) I blame you. Why is he on the donkey? Because Isaiah 45:21 is true, our God is a savior. Amen. He is a consuming fire God, an unapproachably holy God, and a saving God. You have all these myriad attributes of this this fearsome I am Creator God. He's all these things. A God of fierce wrath as we read the Bible. And a compassionate Savior. He's all these things. You will never grow weary of worshiping this God. So the question for you and me tonight is, has this biblical truth changed us? Has it changed you from the inside out? Does it change every single day that you get up? Does it color your perspective on everything that God is on a donkey and God will die for us? I just think it's good for us to remember who this is. I know doctrinally we acknowledge who this is. But I think it's good to think deeply about who this is on this donkey. And who this is that will be crucified for your sin and for my sin. So bear with me just for a few minutes. I just want to remind you who this is. He's the God of Genesis 1.1. He's the God who created everything. He's the God who took the dust of the ground and He breathed life into it. And man became a living being. He's the God of Genesis chapter 6 and 7, the holy, righteous, wrathful God who blotted out every living thing upon the face of the earth except for Noah and the creatures in the ark. He's the God of Exodus chapters 3-15, through the awesome, fearsome, consuming fire God who crushed the nation of Egypt to deliver His people. He's the God of Mount Sinai, the thunderous, fiery, smoking, quaking mountain when He gave His law to His people. He's the God of David. First Chronicles 29.11 David writes, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens 
and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and You exalt Yourself as head over all. This God on this donkey, He's the God of Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries round about. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. This God on this donkey, He's the God of Psalm 99, which you know I dearly love. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise His great and awesome name. Holy is He. He's the God of Daniel 7. His throne was ablaze with flames. A river of fire was flowing out beyond the, before the Lord and thousands upon thousands were attending Him and myriads upon myriads were standing before Him. He's the God of Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of His robe filling the temple. And one of the seraphim called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. He is the God of Isaiah 40, chapters 40 to 46. I share this with you off and on throughout the year. Just a potpourri of verses where God says, I'm God and nobody else is. Isaiah chapter 40 to 46. God says, I am the first and I am the last. Even from eternity I am He. To whom then will you liken me that I should be His equal? I am God and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. Before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it? The nations are nothing before me. I sit above the vault of the earth. I am the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. I am God and there is no God like me. Okay. That's who's on the donkey. I don't know if it doesn't move you. Um, I don't know. I don't know how that cannot move you. J.L. Packer's right. The more you think about it, <laughs> the more staggering it is. So, what is God's motivation? What is God's motivation? To sacrifice Himself for His people. What is His motivation? All I know, it's that mankind fell into sin, but felt really bad about it. And so, we've set our heart on being reconciled to God and we've devoted ourselves to pursuing God and we want God above all things and, and, and natural man is, is, is seeking for God and groping for God and trying to find God, right? And so God is just simply responding to the fact that we, we, we decided we want Him instead of sin, right? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? No, that's not what the Bible teaches, right? We didn't want Him. 
We didn't want Him. From the garden on, we didn't want Him. But He wants us. Just to clarify my bit of sarcasm, the Bible clearly teaches that mankind knowingly and willfully rebelled against God. Romans chapter 1, mankind has suppressed the truth of God within his own conscience and mind. Mankind has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Again, Romans 1, mankind has exchanged the glory of God for created things. Romans 1, mankind has been utterly thankless toward God. Romans 1, mankind has not honored God as God. Romans 1, mankind is a hater of God. Romans 1, mankind is full of unrighteousness, wickedness, inventors of evil. Romans 1, Mankind has not sought for God, Romans 3. Mankind has no fear of God, Romans 3. Mankind has willfully made himself into the enemy of God, Romans 5. Mankind has indulged the flesh and has become a child of wrath, Ephesians 2. I could cite many, many, many other passages that reveal the true heart of fallen man, that reveals your true heart, the heart you had, before God circumcised it. Before God did the miracle that only He can do in the hearts of His people. So why has this awesome God condescended to take on flesh? Why is this almighty sovereign God riding a donkey through the gates of Jerusalem? You know the answer, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The Holy Spirit says it again in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, just as He, the Father, chose us in Him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. The Holy Spirit says it again in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Holy Spirit says it again, Ephesians 2.4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Again, I could cite many, many, many other passages, but I suffice to say, God is on the donkey because God loves His people. He's come to save a people for His own name. If you love God today, it's because 1 John 4.19 is true. He first loved you. In eternity past, as one of my favorite theologians says, He set His heart on you. And no price was too high to pay to have you with Him forever. I know some of you have hard things in your lives. I know some of you have hard days. I know sometimes it's hard 
in this fallen world, but don't ever forget how much this God has loved you. You know, on your hardest day, you can, you can remember that, right? And you can rejoice. You can rejoice. This God has loved you like this. And that can never change. You know, wives leave, husbands leave, children, children rebel, friends abandon. But this God never does. This God never does. He has loved His people from eternity past and He will love us forever. God has staged a cosmic intervention. So you know what an intervention is, right? You guys know this term. It's something that friends and loved ones do in, 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 in a life when they see a friend or loved one engaging in self-destructive practices, usually some kind of um, addiction, drugs, alcohol, pornography, uh, whatever, and they see how this is adversely affecting the life of their friend and family. So they stage an intervention. In love, they stage an intervention. I assert to you that this is very similar to what God has done. I look the word intervention up. It says to interfere, to get involved, and to intrude. Now this is what God has done, right? He's, he's uh, interfered, He's gotten involved, and He has intruded in the life of willful sinners. God interjected Himself into my life, right? <laughs> if you're a Christian tonight, He has done the same in your life. He has come to get you off your addiction, which is sin, self-love, and self-absorption. He's come to get you onto Him. Because only, as I say so frequently, only He can satisfy the depths of your soul. You can't do it. Um, your career can't do it. Your marriage can't do it. Your kid can't do it. Uh, all the money in the world can't do it. All the pleasure in the world can't do it. God set eternity in the heart of man and we must have God or we indeed will perish. As C.S. Lewis says, you know, once a man turns away from God, what can he do but wither and die? Amen? Even if he dies owning the whole world, his soul is withered. His soul is lost. So this cosmic intervention of God, it began in eternity past as He decided to save a people for Himself. And He foresaw the, the fall of Adam and Eve. And immediately He comes to them. Amen? Right? Immediately God comes to them in Genesis chapter 3. Adam! Where are you? And what did Adam say? <laughs> what did Adam say? Well, of course, I think Adam blamed it on Eve and Eve blamed it on the serpent. But I always love that, that Genesis 3, God is always the initiator. God is always the one seeking reconciliation. God is always taking Again, the initiative. So in Genesis 3, we read how as God righteously judges Adam and Eve for their sin, He, he, mentions, he mentions how uh, the, 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 the seed of woman will bruise the head of Satan. The cross, it's there. 
You know this, right? This is a prophecy of the cross. The cross is in Genesis 3. Messiah is going to come! And then we see also in Genesis 3 that God sheds the blood of an animal so He can clothe Adam and Eve. Already we understand that sin is so heinous before God that blood must be spilt. You know, I know we all think so lightly of our sin at times. I'll call them back. <laughs> you know, don't worry. Don't worry. It happens. Hey, it's happened to me a couple of times. <laughs> so don't, don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. Sin against God is so heinous. It's, it's a cosmic outrage. And I know we think so lightly about it, but He gave us a lesson right there in Genesis, Genesis 3. Blood must be spilt. And, and, and if you read the Old Testament, you realize that it's just one long intervention. And God, you know, He stages an intervention with Abraham and it's, and it's about the Messiah. And he, and he says, you're going to have a son! A son of promise! And through your son, all the nations of the earth will be blessed! It's a prophecy of Christ. He stages an intervention in Moses' life. The whole exodus is about you and me. The whole exodus is about Messiah. The whole exodus is that the Jews would come out and Messiah would be established and you and I would be reconciled to God through Christ, through the cross. Beloved, it's always been about the Messiah. God intervened in Mary and Joseph's life, right? <laughs> Why? He's going to save a people for Himself. He intervened in the lives of the disciples that the Gospel might be preached, that you and I would have the Word of God, that we would understand how we've been loved and how we've been saved, and that we wouldn't grope in the dark like the other peoples of the world. We would have the light and we would take the light to those peoples. This is what the Lord has called us to do as we so often say... So do you see what I mean when I say, really, the Bible is a one long cosmic divine intervention. God has come to get you off sin because He loves you. He loves you. That's why God's on a donkey in John chapter 12. As, and as many of you know, this is recorded in every gospel. The Lord doesn't want us to miss this. God's on a donkey. He's coming for His people. This is recorded in all four Gospels. Let me just set the stage and we'll go through the text real quick. Jesus spent that night with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus and Bethany. He had just, you know, raised Lazarus from the dead. It was Sunday morning. Jesus leaves Bethany, which is a few miles east of Jerusalem. And there's already a multitude with Him. They came out to see what He had done with Lazarus. They came out to see Lazarus. There's a multitude with Him coming from Bethany toward Jerusalem. And He begins to ascend the Mount of Olives. And as you, as you recall, um, the Lord had sent a couple of His disciples to, to obtain a, a, a donkey that had never been ridden, right? 
and they had brought the donkey to Jesus. And Jesus sits on this donkey and He begins to move down the western slope of the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. And Matthew's Gospel tells us that all the city was stirred. All the city was stirred. Scholars tell us there's probably two and a half million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. And all the city was stirred. You heard the text read. I will not reread the text. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tells us <clears throat> the people were spreading their garments as well as palm branches. Obviously, this is where we get the, the, the title of this uh, Sunday on the church calendar. On the road to, to sort of make a red carpet for Jesus as He came into Jerusalem. And I just want to jump over real quick. I want to share with you an excerpt from, from Luke chapter 19. It's Luke's account of, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Luke 19, I'm going to begin there in verse 37. And as Jesus was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And He answered, and He said, I tell you, if they become silent, someone tell me what this says. If they become silent, what? The rocks will cry out. Jesus Christ will be praised whether you do it or not. The whole universe exists for the glory of Christ and He will be praised whether you do it or not. The rocks will cry out. Jesus Christ is meant to be praised. He is the King of heaven and earth. And if you won't praise Him, <laughs> the rocks will. It reminds me of that great verse. Thank you, Horatio. It reminds me of that great verse in... in uh, Job 12:7 through 9 and I think it's Job speaking here he says who doesn't know that God has done these things he says he says the beast no the birds no the earth no and the fish no it's only fallen man who refuses to know amen it's only fallen man if you will not praise him you will bow your knee to him and confess Him as Lord before you are sent to hell if you will not praise Him freely you will bow your knee you will bow your knee every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on that last day beloved do you understand do you understand? If we, turn, if we turn this Savior down, how can there be any salvation? If we are indifferent toward this Christ, if we are indifferent 
toward this sacrifice, if it doesn't really mean anything to me, if it doesn't change my life, it's hard to imagine or fathom that that can be true, but we understand that Christianity, as I was talking earlier with Victor, we were both talking about how obviously Christianity is a supernatural thing. You know? You don't come to Christ because you figured it because you were smart enough to figure it out. You don't come by salvation through the flesh. Amen? It's a supernatural proposition. It's the work of God. If you look at John 12, 13, back to John 12, um, 13 there you see the people crying out, Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? What does Hosanna mean? God save us. <laughs> That's what it means. This is a quote from Psalm 118, 25-26. If you go to that psalm and you look in verse 25, you don't see the word Hosanna. What you see is what the word Hosanna means. The word Hosanna means, O Lord, do save us. We beseech You. God is answering the prayer. Amen? God is on a donkey. He's answering the prayer. He is answering that prayer. It's one of the beautiful mysteries of biblical prayer. When did God start to answer this prayer? Long before these people ever chanted Hosanna, God begins to answer prayer in eternity past. You know that your prayers in time are before God in eternity past, right? You understand that, right? I won't go into that. Don't want to confuse you. But when did this intervention begin in eternity past? This intervention began in eternity past. I said it to you earlier, Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. This intervention began in eternity past. So, back to the text. It begs the question, doesn't it? And I'd like to hear if you have a, a thought on this. If all of these people are praising Jesus on Sunday, why are they screaming crucify Him on Friday? What's up with that? What's up with that? How is that possible? You know what happened, right? Still goes on today. He just wasn't the God they thought He was. If He would perform adequately for them, which was to what? Deliver them from the Romans. If He would be a political or military deliverer, they would love Him. Oh, some free bread and free fish? That would be good too. Oh, no leprosy? No blindness? No infirmity? That would be great. That's the God we want. We want that God. It's just like it is today. People want some caricature of Jesus. They don't want the real Jesus. These people didn't want Jesus. They didn't want the real biblical Jesus. They wanted, they wanted a made-to-order God, right? They wanted a God who would perform. And when He turned out not to be that God, what? Kill Him! Right? Just kill Him! And that's exactly what they did. 
You guys know verse 15. It's a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Let me read it to you from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. I've never verified this. If you guys know the source, you can tell me. But I've always heard it said that Jesus fulfills hundreds, up to 300 Old Testament prophecies. Obviously, Zechariah 9.9 is one of them. So exactly, who is this riding this donkey into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? It's God. Exactly why is God riding in Jerusalem on a donkey? Because of His great love with which He loved us. You know, I say it when I preach on Easter, and I'll probably say it next week. I don't like preaching on Easter because it affects me, kind of like I'm being affected tonight. It's so huge. <laughs> it's so, it's so huge. And you just realize just how small you are as a preacher when you, when you come up against this kind of mammoth biblical truth. And... So, yeah, you can pray for me this week, and we'll, Lord willing, I'll be able to preach all the way through the sermon next week. But I want you to hear, beloved, that it's God on a donkey. God's on the donkey because He loves you. And this God will be beaten. He will be scourged. He will be stripped naked. He will be spat upon. He will be crowned with thorns. He will experience utter humiliation and He will be murdered. Because He loves His people. You know, many have called this the triumphal entry of Jesus. Um, And I get that. I understand why they're calling it that. But I've never liked that description. I don't see it that way at all. Uh, Actually, if you look at the Luke 19, 41 verse there and you see Jesus coming into the city it says and when Jesus approached the city he wept over it this is not about a triumphal entry it's about a bereaved God coming to give himself away to shed his own blood for his people so I thought I would close tonight by just reading to you Jesus' true triumphal entry, which is still future to us. I'm just going to turn and read Revelation 19. I'm going to begin in verse 11. This is Jesus' triumphal entry. The one we recognize today, (laughs) yeah, He comes to offer Himself as a sacrifice for your sin and my sin. But soon, as he says in the Revelation, soon, we will see this. Every eye will see it. Revelation 19.11 And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. 
and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one else knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who's on the donkey. And next week we will celebrate the fact that this God was nailed to a tree. And the good news is death could not hold Him. Amen? Death could not hold Him. So we gather next week to celebrate this, um, this, astonishing, this astonishing fact that this awesome God has loved us this way, that He's come for us, He's died for us, He is risen. He is ascended. He is reigning. And He is returning. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we love You. Forgive us, Lord. that we don't treasure these things as we ought. Lord, I pray that You would press home these truths in our heart and in our mind. That we would be so taken up with these astonishing realities and truths this week as we contemplate this special week in the church calendar and we contemplate exactly what You've done for us. Lord, I pray that we would be mindful, we would be humbled, we would be thankful, we would be rejoicing, and we would be witnessing. For You are the great Savior of Isaiah. You are the great Savior. A righteous God and a Savior. A wrathful God who will come in judgment but a compassionate God who has offered salvation to all who would repent and believe. So Lord, let us be Your witnesses this week as we point toward Easter or what the world calls Easter, what we call Resurrection Sunday, the day that You came out of the grave and ensured our salvation. So Lord Jesus, we praise You. Great King of kings and Lord of lords, You are our God. And You are our Savior. And we love You with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh God, use us this week in a special way. Help us to commune with You this week. To think deeply about these things. To be moved. To be changed. To be 
to be stretched, to grow. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you've loved us like this. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.